A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Jesus was praying in a certain place, and after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us and do not bring us to the time of trial. And he said to them, suppose one of you has a friend and you go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves of bread for a friend of mine has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And he answers from within, do not bother me. The door has already been locked and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, at least because of his persistence, he will get up and give him whatever he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened for you. For everyone who asks receives, and everyone who searches finds. And for everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. In the name of God, the Creator, the Christ, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Thomas Lynch leads a double life. He's a prolific writer, and he's a funeral director. In one of his reflections about himself, he says, I write sonnets and I embalm. And I'm happy to take questions on any subject in between those two. In one of his memoirs, he tells a lovely story about his grandmother and her experience of the power of prayer. In the early 1920s, my grandmother, a template Methodist, was smitten by and betrothed to an Irish Catholic. She converted somewhat reluctantly. The priest splashed a little water on her and said, Geraldine, you were born a Methodist, raised a Methodist. Now, thanks be to God, you're a Catholic. Some weeks later, she was grilling steaks in the backyard on the first Friday in Lent. And that was a little unusual because especially at that time, Roman Catholics often used Lent as a time to renounce meat. A neighbor smelling the barbecue upbraided her for fixing meat on Friday. She got the garden hose, sprinkled a few drops of water on the sirloins and said, you were born cows, you were raised cows, and thanks be to God, now you are fish. I'd say thanks be to God for Geraldine and for prayers that are creative and bold and funny all at the same time. Prayers don't have to be long or eloquent or serious to be effective. Anne Lamott, who's also a wonderful writer, has said that her three most powerful prayers can be summarized in three little words. Help, thanks, and wow. Come Lord Jesus, be our guest. Let this food by thee be blessed. That's a little prayer that I learned as a table blessing when I was a child. It stayed with me and informed my faith throughout my adult years. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. 
That's the first line to a much longer prayer that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. If you don't know the whole prayer, it's okay. If you're in the midst of conflict and can only think of these words, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace, you'll be fine. The Lord's Prayer is only 69 words long, depending on the version that you use. But if someone without any knowledge of Jesus asked me to describe the significance of his life the, the, or to summarize his message, well, I'd encourage that person to begin finding an answer to that question by praying that prayer. On this Sunday, closest to the day when we celebrate the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., I wanted to be able to lift up something about him that I may not have surfaced in my other messages about him over the years. Because I've realized that over time, I've certainly read and thought a lot about Dr. King and the significance of his life for our faith and for our country. I thought a lot about the civil rights movement itself and its continuing impact on the life of our nation. But I realized that I haven't always drawn forth the spirituality of Dr. King and that movement. Now, while Dr. King is rightly remembered for his activism, his public demonstration of nonviolence, his speeches and his sermons, his books and his essays, he was also a man who spoke openly about his close relationship with God. Louis Baldwin teaches at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's written extensively on the prayer life of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. This is what he says. Dr. King's personal devotional life was very, very important in giving him the courage and the determination to fight for justice. King would take personal prayer retreats and shut himself in a hotel room or pastor study to pray, meditate, and plan his next sermon or civil rights activities. Public prayer was important to him because he understood prayer in that context as a form of creative energy. It was a way of motivating, affirming, reaffirming, empowering people in the context of the struggle for equal rights. Baldwin writes that prayer was King's secret source of energy in the civil rights movement, a key to its success as people found the strength to continue despite arrests and killings. And Dr. King, was able to intersect into the civil rights movement, Christians, Muslims, Jews, Protestants, Catholics, and they all sang together and prayed together. Martin Luther King Jr. prayed in a way that was bold and decisive, and sometimes his most powerful prayers were brief prayers. I was taking a look at some of the resources that are available for his prayer life and I noticed that these three prayers stood out and I was struck by not only their power, but their brevity. On one occasion he said, God, remove all bitterness from my heart and give me the strength and courage to face any disaster that comes my way. At another time, God, give us strength of body to keep walking for freedom. God, give us strength to remain nonviolent even though we may face death. And this, God, we thank you for the inspiration of Jesus. Grant that we will love you with all our hearts, souls, and minds, and love our neighbors as we love ourselves, even our enemy neighbors. Words like these were prayed in sanctuaries and prayed on streets and in jails 
and while waiting for marches to begin. He and his fellow pilgrims prayed with songs and protest signs and with their hopes and with their dreams. In his book, Deeply Woven Roots, Gary Gunderson says that this strength to pray is the single and most distinguishing feature of what makes congregations unique. And here's what Gary Gunderson says in his book. Congregations pray, and the prayer makes and marks the difference between them and other voluntary forms of association. Prayer is the reason congregations build sanctuaries and ministry centers, and not just museums, performance studios, libraries, family life centers, and public meeting rooms. We would all prefer to harvest the fruit of congregations without having to deal with the absurdities and mysteries that happen when humans try to talk to and about ultimate things. But prayer is what sets congregations apart. If they don't pray, there's something else, some other kind of voluntary association, but not a church, synagogue, temple, or mosque. More often than not, the prayers that we pray are prayers of dissatisfaction. Every time we pray those words, thy kingdom come, as part of the Lord's Prayer, we're talking about and dreaming about a world that does not yet exist, but yet it is a world for which we long. It's a prayer that's looking for change. It's a prayer designed to give us strength so that we can increase the peace, so that we can fill the world with love. In other words, prayer is always, at some level, an uprising against the disorder of the world. So no wonder that during the civil rights movement, Prayers gave voice to the deepest longings and the grief and the dreams of people who were living in the direst circumstances. Now, many times, language gave wings to those longings and continues to do so, but it's not absolutely necessary to find the right words in order to create the space for a beautiful and powerful prayer. Great prayers can be formed with tears, in the joy of laughter, in silent awe, or anguished expressions of grief, simply in the expression of hands being clasped together. Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel was a great Jewish scholar and also a civil rights advocate who often marched with the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And following one of those protest marches, Rabbi Heschel was asked to talk about his experience on the march and he said, today I prayed with my feet. Prayer is less a matter of getting the words right than of bringing to the world around us a generous, generous spirit of awareness and longing for justice. It's not only seeing the world, but it's observing the world, its beauty and also its inequities, and then resolving to do something about that. Eckhart Tolle, author of a book, The New Earth, says this, the joy of being is the joy of being conscious. And I'd like to think that prayer happens anytime when we heighten our awareness about ourselves and the world and about the God who is alive and at large in the world with us and for us. When we're looking around us while we're waiting at the pharmacy, perhaps for a vaccination or a booster shot, looking at other people, thinking about all of those people as children of God, that's prayer. 
when we're listening respectfully to the questions that our children raise, the deepest and sometimes the most awkward questions about life and faith and God, when we listen and ask them for their thoughts, that's prayer. When we're preparing a meal for ourselves or for someone else to be nourished, to do the work that God has given us to do, or whether we're joining a march to protest an injustice in our country, those are prayers. Any action that awakens us to a sense of what God is up to in the world draws us, any, any action that draws us into that life of God unfolding in our world, takes us deeper into the life of love, those are prayers. The force of spiritual connection that was available to people of faith 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth, that was a source of strength and inspiration for them. The force of love that was available to the people of this country during the civil rights movement and through the leadership of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and so many others, it is still alive and at large in the world. It's what Mahatma Gandhi referred to as satyagraha, soul force. Prayer is a soul force in action. That's what Dr. King understood, and that's really the root of the civil rights movement. So with words, without words, prayer always takes place when there is an appreciation of wonder and mystery, and when we're opening our hearts to become more and greater participants in this life of love. So a prayer can be quiet and tender. A prayer can be fierce and shouted. And we can always find new ways to pray. In his book, uh, Gary Gunderson's book, Deeply Woven Roots, where he talks about the strength to pray, he talks about a woman who is part of his congregation, the Oakhurst Baptist Church, uh, where Gary Gunderson attended worship for many years. And he says that this individual, Betty Thompson, a woman with cerebral palsy, had been a member of Oakhurst for many years. The congregation became used to her sitting near the back left-hand corner of the sanctuary. One day, she was able to speak publicly to us, he writes, by means of a computer-assisted speech augmentation device attached to her wheelchair. I still chill to think, he says, of the first time she led us in corporate prayer, the computerized voice cutting away the space between us, letting us see God through her lens of experience as she prayed for us and with us. So when we say, let us pray, we are shaping the world in ways that align us with the deep and unshakable hopes of God, the dream of a world where as it is in heaven, so may it be on earth. Thanks be to God. Amen.